To any Americans here, happy 4th of July, Independence Day for yesterday. And tonight we're going to look at what true independence is. And before we begin, let's place this time in the hands of somebody who is totally reliable and dependable. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your written word. We recognise its authority over us as we submit to it. Dear Father, I'm also aware that people here tonight are at different stages in life. Some people have been happily married for many years. Some relatively new weds. I pray also for those who are having marriage difficulties, divorced, estranged or widowed. I pray that your Holy Spirit will be working in them that whatever emotions that are elicited, that they are feeling, or trials undergo, he will bring counsel to them. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, that lover. I pray for myself now that I would have clarity of mind and of speech, and that each one of us here would be willing to submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit, who seeks to counsel each one of us. And we pray this in the majestic name of Jesus. Amen. You may remember back in January we started this journey together of the Song of Solomon's back in chapter 2 verses 3 to 14 and I called that one uh, Life Under the Apple Tree, Jesus being the apple tree. I'm Australian, don't worry. We saw together that Jesus, this tremendous lover, wants to hear the voice of those who would be his people and to be their king. And then in May, we continued the journey, looking at chapter 5, verse 9 to 6, verse 9. And we saw together there that Jesus is the best of the best, and that Jesus is altogether lovely in every aspect, his life, his death, his birth, his resurrection on the cross, ascension, exaltation, holiness, glorification, I could go on. And he's altogether lovely and glorious. And I think I also said back then that there are three main ways to interpret this book. First, there's a story about the the joys of biblical love between one man and one woman. That bit even I can see. And some would say that it was a bit erotic, but as an Australian male, I can't see it. And secondly, the earliest commentators and readers of it saw it as an allegory about God's love for his people Israel particularly with their coming Messiah in mind. And the third way shows that this Song of Songs speaks not only on a physical level about the importance of human love and intimacy between a man and a woman, but also the intimacy that exists, blossoms and grows between a person and Jesus Christ. Martin Luther that great German romanticist called it the noblest of all songs. And so this book has been uh, historically interpreted those three ways. We move on tonight to perhaps what could be considered the, the key verses of this book. The couple have now entered into a, a covenantal relationship, a relationship where they're committed to one another. So please do open your Bibles and turn to page 683 and we'll read the Song of Solomon, chapter 8, 
verses 5 to 7. If I read the first part of chapter 5 as the friends, and then you can read the rest to the end of verse 7. So I read the first part of verse 5 of chapter 8. Who is this coming up from the desert leaning on her lover? This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can tell I'm Anglican. These three verses are the key verses of the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs as some people call it. As the couple have now entered into a covenant of love, and we are tonight going to look at four aspects of this covenantal love. A covenant is a contract, a promise. And throughout Old Testament history, God had made covenants with people. People such as Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses. And the original, original readers and the commentators would have known this and understood this. And with that insight, we're going to see four aspects of this covenantal love. And the first one is dependency. Who is this coming up from the desert leaning on her lover? A similar question was asked back in chapter 3, verse 6. And three things are immediately noticeable about this verse, or this part of the verse. They're together. They are leaving the behind them, and she is leaning on him. This is a total picture of covenant love between a man and a woman. The woman leaning on the man signifies a dependence upon him. At that time, the power of the female in a, in a relationship was uh, perhaps minimal and she depended on her husband for everything. Now, I'm not saying that it should be that way now and I'm not saying it shouldn't be that way. You have to ask young me. But today it's more equal and about a mutual dependence in most cases, particularly here in the West. And just as Israel was married to God in a covenant relationship, they too left the desert together in a grand exodus as they left Egypt. They too endured hard times, mainly as the ancient nation of Israel was dependent upon God for all things. So whom do we depend upon now, both as a church and as individuals? What desert are you travelling through with the God as your companion? Are you leaning on Jesus Christ as you endure and persist? Or even lean on Jesus when it seems things are going well and easy? In all manner of life we are to trust fully in this Jesus and we are not to lean on our own wisdom. For sure God has given us minds to, to rationalise and work things out but we do so in submission to the Holy Spirit and his authority over us. 
Why is Jesus so dependable? And why can we be dependent upon him? And in the account that we read about Jesus walking on the water from John, we can see various things about dependency. Matthew's account goes into even greater detail. The experience of the disciples in the storm can be an encouragement to us when we ourselves are going through the storms of life. And we all go through them. And when we find ourselves in these storms, we can rest on these assurances about Jesus if we are Christian. By faith he is praying. Jesus saw the disciples and knew their troubles, just as he knows our troubles and needs today. This entire scene is a dramatic picture of the church and the Lord. The church is on the sea in the midst of storms. And the storms in this country are only going to get greater. Are they not? And yet Jesus Christ is in heaven and he's making intercourse, he's praying for us. Paul tells us that in in Romans chapter 8. Jesus feels the burdens and the cares we have and he knows what we we are going through, according to the writer of Hebrews. And if you knew Jesus was physically in the next room, praying for you, should that not give you new courage to endure any troubles as you follow him? Of course you would, or you should. And he is in heaven now praying for you and I in our needs, our fears, and he is in control. And by faith he will come. Why did Jesus walk on water? To show the disciples that the very thing they feared was merely a walkway for him to come to them. They did not recognise him because they were not looking for him. And often we may feel that this Jesus has deserted us as we're going through uh, both hard times and easy times. And scripture is full of such experience. Jesus always comes to us in the storms. He may not come in the time we think he might come, because he knows when we need him most. Or he may have already appeared and we haven't recognised him. And by faith he will help us grow. This was the whole purpose of the storm, to help his disciples grow in their faith. After all, Jesus would one day leave them and they would face many storms in their own ministry. They had to learn to trust him even though he would not be there with them and even though it looked like he didn't care. And we have to give Peter credit for asking Jesus to save him and perhaps this is what he was thinking of when he, when he later wrote in one of his letters this, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. This all helped Peter to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. And by faith he will see us through. Jesus said, come. Peter went with him and together they walked to the ship. And this must have encouraged the other disciples who were in the boat, as well as Peter. And when they saw the power of Jesus, what did they do? They worshipped him. So whatever temporal troubles we have and are enduring and going through, Jesus will see us through to the end for his praise and for his glory. 
And our dependence upon God, upon Jesus, reflects our independence away from the world. And by the world I mean those outside the church, all those who are not following God. The world outside the church at its worst hates God and hates his people, the church. The world outside the church at its best is ambivalent and ignorant of of the people and the church. And I have learned and am still learning that, that total dependence upon God takes an incredible amount of effort. So how can we do it? In our own strength we fail. But you know what? God has sent a helper. The Holy Spirit. We also have each other. We are mutually dependent upon each other as we seek to be dependent upon God. And our second aspect is Dekka. I don't mean from Star Trek. Verse 5, the second part. Under the apple tree I roused you, there your mother conceived you, there she who was in labour gave you birth. And here the woman is speaking and looking back to uh, chapter 2 that we looked back at back in January where she met him and called him an apple tree. How romantic. Young me, don't get any ideas. And here she is looking back fondly to the time she first encountered him. It was, as all newlyweds will remember, the time when she felt for the first time as if she was truly alive. And the ability to remember is a wonderful gift of God to all people. Memories can bring about the full gamut of experience and emotion, sadness, bitterness, anger, joy, ecstasy and love. And I wonder what your ability to remember is like. Perhaps you're like me and your, your memory often fails. Sometimes I will think that I've remembered something, but it turns out to be a false memory of an event that never occurred. I tell you stories, but I've forgotten them. Or other times I'll forget to remember something and then miss out on something important, so I have to write everything down. And are you like that, I wonder? In the last few months, as I do not have uh, very much long-term memory, I started to get doubting voices. Did you really become a Christian back in 1981? I couldn't verify it myself, so I prayed about it. And then shortly after a social networking site called Facebook, I encountered the woman who had led me to faith back in 1981. She was able to verify, she remembered the night that I gave myself to this Jesus. Seen her since the mid-80s. That's about the only time that I've spoken to her in the last decades. And I haven't spoken to her since. That's not a coincidence, that's a God incident. That's an answer to prayer. And as a Christian, sin still tries to entangle us. But by remembering certain things, we can learn to, be, to live an obedient life. And one of the reasons why we still sin after becoming a Christian is because we forget who we are. And by remembering who you are as a Christian, not only will you believe and behave 
as a dedicated follower of Jesus Christ, but you will also have the assurance only living a dynamic relationship brings. And as a help, if you remember these five things in order to be assured of your relationship with Jesus in the battle to overcome sin and our enemies. Firstly, Jesus not only died for you, but you also died with him. And through baptism, as Richard and others went through a couple of weeks ago, that symbolises death with Christ. And But then you are also raised with Christ in baptism and you rule with him, seated at the right hand of the Father. This is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, by the way. And as a Christian, your life is to be Jesus and Jesus is to be your life. You are to be dead to sin and yet alive to Christ. You now belong to Jesus Christ and you are hidden with him in heaven. That means that our motives and our strengths are to come from him, this Jesus, this lover. And then you will also be glorified with this Jesus Christ. Did you know that? When Jesus Christ returns and we see him face to face and he takes our face in his hands and wipes away the tears that we will cry, he will then take us home to everlasting glory to be fully revealed in glory. Amen? And lastly, we are told to remember Jesus Christ in the sacrament of communion as we did this morning. We participate in it, doing it regularly as a reminder of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection until he comes again, says Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. Having this assurance and remembering these things help us overcome the problems that we all have with overcoming doubt of the assurance of our salvation and our acceptance before God. Remembering who you are in Jesus Christ helps you to be assured that you are his in a covenant love relationship. Next time you recognise that you're being tempted to sin, and we all do, remember who you are, just as Jesus remembered who he was in the garden the night before he died. Remember who you are and call out for help in avoiding temptation. He will remember you and help you. Not all memories, however, are to be cherished. Paul, as we will see in Philippians chapter 3 in a couple of weeks' time, and the writer to the Hebrews, commands us to remember not the past but to go forward. And quite often we do the reverse. We remember the bad things and forget the things that God wants us to remember. No doubt old hairy legs is at work. By the way, old hairy legs is an Australian insult. And in this case it refers to Satan. And the life of Jesus is evidential, historical fact. But for us Christians it is not just history because it is also our story. The difference between history and memory, says the chief rabbi Jonathan Sachs, is that history is somebody else's story and memory, memory is your own story. So make it yours. And then thirdly, desire. Verse 6. 
Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, long as death, see unyielding as the grave, it's in fire, like a flame. And here we have a picture of love, of, devo- of desire. You can feel the desire welling up. And desire is not wishy-washy. Desire is sure. Desire is strong and intense. Desire is passionate. But we have to make sure that it is the right desire. A right desire such as a husband's desire for his wife and for a wife for her husband. And the covenant relationship, this covenant relationship of love is sealed. Seals in ancient times were used to symbolise ownership and authorship. Marriage was sealed, just as the high priest also was sealed with ownership when he wore his priestly rings in the breastplate. And for us, it's our wedding rings, and in my case, also my watch, if I remember correctly, was part of the covenant between young me's father and me when I married her. He did complain that it cost too much. But that's the price of covenant love. As Christians, we are to desire Jesus and have him rule over every aspect of our life. How are you doing with that? Is there aspects of your life that you haven't handed over yet? And in that way, we then gain true independence and freedom. But did you know that God also desires you? He desires to be in a relationship with you so much that he even sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on a dirty Roman cross as the ultimate propitiation and sacrifice and the shedding of blood. This Jesus gave sacrificial love in order to break the barrier between God and mankind. That is how much God desires you. Jesus' desire is that everybody of all time will enter into a living, desirous relationship with him. Why? Because there is a new covenant. Why? You will be sealed with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because then you will be also be transformed. Remember, he lives inside you. God, the Holy Spirit, the fullness of God lives inside you and you are to be controlled by him. And he has sealed you. The Holy Spirit, if he lives in you and is assured proof of, of you being possession and he is your security. The Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing your future and present redemption, salvation and inheritance, writes Paul in Ephesians 1.13 and 2 Corinthians 1 verse 22 both in the present and in the future and as a member of Jesus Christ church today we live under the new covenant which both Jeremiah and Ezekiel spoke about and four features of this covenant are God transforming you God being your God and you being his God living inside you and leading you and controlling you and that your sins are forgiven and removed. And this new covenant is sealed only through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ on that cross. His blood 
ensures the truth of this new covenant. There is no other way for this new covenant to be sealed except through Jesus' blood on that dirty old Roman cross. This new covenant finalises what the Mosaic covenant could only point to, the follower of God living a righteous life and being conformed to God's holy character. And just as the bride here is sealed, we too are sealed. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside each person who has decided to follow Jesus. The Holy Spirit is God's mark of ownership upon you if you are following Jesus. I don't have time to fully expound this about the New Covenant. You may be glad to know. And I'll just try to, to uh, explain this one aspect about God indwelling and living inside. Maybe next time if I get invited back, we'll go there. Okay, how can all this come about? It can only be through the work of God himself. The Holy Spirit is God and a member of the Trinitarian Godhead. The Holy Spirit is a person. I've heard people in church refer to the Holy Spirit as it and I want to get up out of my seat. Well, I have got out of my seat here occasionally, but only acting. And when they refer to it as it, they're clearly wrong and in the error. The Holy Spirit is always referred to as a he in the New Testament. John 16 verse 14 for example. And he relates to us as a person for he is a comforter, a guide and a teacher John 14 says. And he can be blasphemed against and be grieved according to Ephesians 4 verse 30. And wherever the Holy Spirit is the Father and the Son are also present because they are one. In John 14 verse 18 to 23. The Holy Spirit is your seal of salvation if you are a Christian. He is the mark of ownership and all who bow the knee to this Jesus, the tremendous lover, this majestic one. And we have the Holy Spirit inside them and and willing to transform us. In some people the, the Holy Spirit is exuberant and in others the Holy Spirit works quietly. The Holy Spirit works in each individual, individually. He doesn't work in people the exact same way all the time. And the Holy Spirit is a deposit, guaranteeing our redemption, salvation and inheritance. He guarantees us life everlasting. And without the Holy Spirit living inside, a person cannot be a Christian. And the greatest proof if you need one that the Holy Spirit is inside you is your transformation into the image of this Jesus Christ. You may not recognise the change but those around you will. And all this should give you a desire to live for God. And we now move from this third aspect to our fourth and final one, devotion. I'll read verse 6 again. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. And here is a portrait 
of their devotion. Devotion here is tough, intense, passionate, enduring and priceless. She is utterly besotted with her husband, just as Old Testament Israel was to be with God. And from our reading earlier in Ruth, we heard about her devotion to God. Read the whole book for the full story if you haven't already. It's only short, I promise you. But what kind of love is this devotion? Is it a friendly love or perhaps a nice, soft, romantic love? No. Devotional love is also an agape love, a love that is sacrificial and selfless. That is the love this beloved is talking about, her lover, describing him. This devotional love is strong, it's intense, it's passionate. It's utter devotion of both mind and body, of intimacy. And it was to be the devotion that ancient Israel was to have had with their God. And it was certainly a picture of God's love for them, just as it is a picture of God's love for us. This is no soppy, plastic, Hollywood love of the movies. This devotion is tough. It's tough love. It's a love that is a devotion of one's very self in order to be of service to other people. To other people regardless of uh, any relationship between them. This devotional love involves loving others sacrificially, echoing the very way that God loved and loves and continues to love. We are to be so filled and magnetised with God's love and grace that it is a magnetic attraction to others outside the church of the majestic goodness of the awesome God that we are to serve, obey and be devoted to. By loving others in this way, the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes attractive and undeniable and people will come up to us and say, what is so different about you? And the prime hallmark of your being a Christian is your devotion, is, is your love. Can we run out of this type? No. We can't because it's always topped up the grace of the God that we love, live, serve, adore, worship and are devoted to. For us as Christians, these, these verses are a description of devoted love. Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians 13, gives a full picture of love. And even then he almost ran out of words. And we also know that from Romans 8, verse 38 to 39, nothing can conquer God's love. We live in a world that is in love with love. In the Bible, God's love is revealed. The Apostle John, in 1 John 4, does not simply say, that God loves. He says that God is love and that's the difference. And we have to remember that God is the Trinity, three persons in one. And the Trinity is a living, vibrant community of love. And every activity of this Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, is an expression of love. God loves because that is his very nature. God's love is described as unfailing, everlasting, intimate, sacrificial, 
unbreakable, all-conquering, immeasurable and an all-knowing love. It is a love of devotion and desire. How is God's love seen? I would like to suggest two ways. Firstly, this devotional love is shown supremely in that he has given his son Jesus Christ to be the saviour of the world. This is so that if any person takes up the opportunity, they can know and enjoy God in a personal relationship. It's intimate and personal. God had only one son, that was Jesus Christ. And he sent him on a rescue mission to seek the lost and to reconcile people back to God in devotional love, covenantal love. And this is love in action. The lover dying for the ones that he loves and is devoted to saying, desiring them. And secondly, God's devotional love is ourselves show love. And as a Christian, you are a child of God. So you should want to be like this Jesus Christ by showing the world your love for others and in your transformed character. If you don't give people a reason to ask, what's the difference? Well, I better not say anything more. The Christian church should also be a community of love, devoted to one another, for this is how the world sees the invisible God. And we know that God loves us and is devoted to us. We know that Jesus loves us. But how do we show our love for him? By the extent of our devotion to him. The love between Christians is to be as a a visible showing of the invisible God. The very character of the church should always be to reflect God in all aspects. That is how we are to show our devotion to God. The primary way is to love others, says the Apostle John in 1 John 4, verse 20. It is easiest to love your friends. It's easier to love those around you. It's even easy to love those you don't know. But Jesus, as ever, goes one step further, doesn't he? He commanded that we love even our enemies. Now that is very difficult and at the time very radical and it's only with the help of God and his abundant grace towards us as we depend on the Holy Spirit to empower us that we can do it. To love only those who love us is what those outside the church expect as normal behaviour. But as a Christian we are to do more and to be seen to love more than any other people. Our love is to be extraordinary, compelled by devotion to reflect our love of God by loving others. We don't have to like others as friends, but we do have to love them as fellow human beings. Then we too will be exhibiting our devotional love of God and making the invisible God visible in Palna and in Ringwood and in all places where we encounter people. And so we have seen from this passage four aspects of covenantal love. Dependence, data, desire and devotion. Four different aspects. But what can we do as we leave here? 
For to leave here without anything to do would not be giving honour or glory to this Jesus. And nor would it be submitting ourselves to the authority of Scripture in applying it to our life as we leave. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you have answered his call, his desire on your life. You know who he is. You have experienced liberating, true independence by being dependent upon him. You lean on him through both the good and the bad times. You recall the past when you first encountered Jesus as the tremendous lover that he is in majesty, glory and honour. And you remember what he's done for you and who you are in him. You recognise that you are desired by God and are to desire him in every aspect of life. And knowing who this Jesus is, recalling past encounters and recognising your desire for him, you are to live a life of total devotion to him by loving all other people, even enemies. So go out with joy, devotion and desire. But I'm also aware there may be some people here who are not yet a follower of this Jesus. And if that is you, he desires to be known by you. He is calling you by name, just as he did me in 1981. And I've had that verified. He's calling you by name, just as he does to everybody. You may not get another chance, like that man did earlier, the one that Adam's going to take the funeral. Jesus gives us all innumerable opportunities to enter into a relationship with him. This Jesus desires to connect with you in an intimate spiritual relationship of covenantal love. And if that is you, then please do see Adam. I'm sure he'll be delighted to speak with you or one of the leaders or the person that brought you. And you can find out how you can start a covenantal relationship with this living God, Jesus Christ. He who calls you by name for an independent life of dependent devotion to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you once more for the gift of your written word. Help each one of us to go from here to glorify Jesus in all we do as we lean on him. For it is, it is in his majestic name and for his glory and honour that we pray. Amen.